This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Please open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. To begin our year, we've decided to do just a series through this book of Nehemiah, going somewhat slowly, not as slow as we sometimes go through books, but making sure that we're going to go through this book and hit everything that's in here. And so today we're coming to chapter 4, and just as a refresher, or maybe this is your first time or you've been gone for a week or two, Nehemiah is a book about God's nation of Israel, specifically It's about the nation of Israel after they have been taken away from their homeland and into captivity and then been kept in captivity for some time, but now they're allowed to start going back. So the book itself is named for a man, Nehemiah, who was part of the Israelites that hadn't actually grown up in Israel, but rather had grown up far away and lived in a city 1,100 miles away called Susa. And Nehemiah even though he lived in exile and lived in Susa, still very much thought of himself as one of God's people. And so when he heard reports about the land of Israel, and specifically the city of Jerusalem, the the disrepair that it was in, it broke Nehemiah's heart. And because of these reports of Jerusalem, he sensed God's calling to leave Susa, to travel 1,100 miles and return to the city of Jerusalem that he might help rebuild it. For God's people, the land of Israel is core to their identity. For Israel, the land that they live in is core to their identity. Because the people of Israel were started by a man named Abraham, who God came to and gave a promise. But it was a multi-part promise. God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a great nation which at that point was surprising because Abraham was an old man who had no children. He said, I'm going to take this nation and I'm going to make them a great people, like the sand on the shore, like the stars in the sky. You will be a great nation. Another part of this promise was that through this nation that came from Abraham, every single person in the world would be blessed. Not just the people of Abraham, not just the nation that came from him, but all peoples would be blessed through this nation. But then God also promised Abraham, I'm going to give this people a land to live in and call their own. And so if you're an Israelite, it's this whole promise that's core to your identity. That you're a descendant of Abraham, that you're a part of this nation that God is making. That through you the world will be blessed but also it's core to your identity that God has given you a land to live in. And so for the nation of Israel, that they lived in this promised land for a relatively short period of time, but eventually through their rebellion, God allowed them to be taken away into exile. And they stayed in exile for a while. And we come now to the book of Nehemiah, where this people who've been promised to become a nation, who've been promised to live in this land are living largely away from where God has promised. But now they're being allowed to go back slowly. And Nehemiah has this burning desire that he might help rebuild Jerusalem and then some part rebuild this people that God is making. So that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 4. The specific work that Nehemiah applied himself to was to rebuilding the outer wall for Jerusalem, the wall of defense. So that if people came up and tried to take the city, try to lay siege to it, they would be safe. This was important for any major city in this age. You had to have a wall. You had to have a boundary marker to know when you're in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem and something to keep the enemies out and the people in and safe. And so Nehemiah's work that he has felt called to is to rebuild this wall so that Jerusalem might flourish once again. And we saw last week that there have been dozens and dozens and perhaps hundreds of people that have joined in on this work. And even in his record, he lays out, just working around the city, naming those who are working on different sections and different gates, just showing the scores of people that God has brought in to do this work, that they might together build up this wall. But it won't always stay easy as we see. So if you're open to chapter 4, let me read this passage for us. Now, 
When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together at a half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant Pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken to us and preserved that word that we might read it today. I ask now as we look to Nehemiah, to his response of opposition, that we might learn about you, your character, how you act among your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 is the part you come to expect from almost any story you hear about. It's the crisis moment. Up until now, Nehemiah has had pretty smooth sailing. Remember, he started out in Susa, cupbearer to the king. He hears that Jerusalem is in ruins, and so he has a mind to return. And when he tells King Artaxerxes about his plan to return, King Artaxerxes not only lets him leave his job as cupbearer, but he ensures that he'll have safe passage to get to Jerusalem, and then he even gives him supplies to help him rebuild the wall. When Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he seems to be able to gather a fairly large group of workers to then build the wall with him. Smooth sailing. But chapter 4 is that crisis moment. The wall is going up, 
Nehemiah seems to be an effective leader, and the crew that he has gathered around him seems to be effective at construction. We've got Sambalot and Tobiah looking on, and they can't help but be angry. What we know of Sambalot and Tobiah is that they likely were some sort of nobles or rulers from the surrounding areas. We know that they came from Samaria and Ammonite and Ashad, areas surrounding the area where Jerusalem was. And we have to wonder why they might be angry. And it seems that their anger is fueled by a desire to be king of the hill. That is to say that as long as Jerusalem lies in ruins, they get to sort of be the rulers of the area. They get to call the shots. But if Jerusalem is reestablished, if we have this city with these walls of defense, then all of a sudden there's another power in the area. It means that the Israelites can start returning to their land and they'll have this city to rally around. And what we can see is that Sambalot, Tobiah, and the rest have no interest in seeing Jerusalem be restored. So they're angry. And in their anger, they start mocking. If you heard about that wall in Jerusalem, really something, isn't it? They're trying to put that up. Too bad a fox could knock it down. If you heard about the Jews, yeah, they're going to try to rebuild that. Unfortunately, it's a pile of rubble. They'll probably get too tired before they can even get halfway done. Their first inclination is to mock the work, but we see even from the outset it's because of an anger that's kindled inside of them. Because someone is encroaching on their territory. They want to be the people in this area that everyone knows run the town. They want to be the people in the valley that their word goes. And if Jerusalem is rebuilt, then all of a sudden they're displaced. So they're angry. So what we see from Nehemiah then is a response. First he does pray. And he asks God, would you flip these taunts and these jeers onto the heads of those who are giving them. And even in his prayer, he asks, would you make them the exiles? Would you let them be taken as captives to some foreign land, just like we've been? Because what they're doing is an affront to you, God. They're mocking and they're jeering at your people rebuilding your city. Would you make them the ones who in their unrighteousness are carried away? But unfortunately, the anger of Sambalot and Tobiah and the rest doesn't just stop at taunting and jeering. It starts moving on and evolving into a plan of conquest. And they say, well, if the Jews aren't going to become discouraged and stop building this wall, then I guess we'll just have to raise up an army so that we can go kill them all. If they're dead, they can't rebuild the wall. So they start plotting and scheming and allies are gathering together and saying, if we all just kind of combine forces, we can get rid of what's happening in Jerusalem and things can keep on going as they were. Now remember, Nehemiah came with the blessing of King Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes is the true ruler in this region. His armies have taken over vast portions of the Mediterranean and even here he has dominion. The only problem is he's 1,100 miles away. It would take about two months to get a message from Jerusalem back to Susa to say, there's an uprising, send help. And even if that message was sent, it's not guaranteed that King Artaxerxes will continue to take an interest in Jerusalem. But say he does. It'll take two months for that help to come from Susa back to Jerusalem. So even though Artaxerxes has given his blessing to Nehemiah, he is now four months away. So that means that Nehemiah and the Jews are by themselves in Jerusalem to figure out what to do with these threats. So Nehemiah continues to pray and he calls his people. He says, we're gonna set watchmen. We're gonna get guards. Everywhere where the wall is vulnerable or if there's an opening because the gates haven't been completely rebuilt yet, we're gonna have a guard there. Everyone's gonna be armed. They're gonna have a weapon at their side. If trouble breaks out, we will be quick to respond to it. We'll make sure to sound the trumpet so that we can all rally to wherever the invasion comes from and fight it off. And Nehemiah gives his people this guarantee. 
wherever we rally to, our God will fight for us. So then the, the chapter ends that the wall continues being built. Like I said, this is the, the point we come to expect from almost any story we read, the crisis point, where we go from smooth sailing to choppy waters, and we see how the characters will respond. The weakness there, however, is that when we read this story simply that way, we suddenly make Nehemiah the main character who has the wisdom to do the right thing so the project will continue. And all along, as we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, one of the things that we've said from the outset is that we don't want this book just to simply be about Nehemiah who built a wall and how you can build your own wall. This isn't just a story about how one man took on a bold project and saw it through to completion. This is, like every other story in the Bible, a story about God working with his people. And so what I don't want us to take away from chapter 4 is some good advice on how to face opposition. Instead, what I believe we should see from chapter 4 is how God responds when his people are in trouble. Furthermore, we should see that, that we worship a God who has a will and a plan for his people. See, this, the headline story of this chapter is not that Nehemiah and his crew are receiving taunts and threats to their work. That's not the main story here. The story of this chapter is that onlook, onlookers are seeing what's happening in Jerusalem and taunting God and his people. The offense of Sambalot and Tobiah is not that they mock the work going on in Jerusalem, but that they become angry with God himself. See, they're, they're mocking Nehemiah's actions, but they're also mocking God's plan. Nehemiah is here to build a wall, but he's here because God has set him here. And so when Sanballat and Tobiah and all the allies start mocking and taunting that work, what they're really doing is they're looking to what God is doing in Jerusalem and saying, that's foolish. Because we worship a God with a will and a plan for his people. And right now that will and plan is directed as people to rebuild a wall. So there will be opposition. But that opposition is an affront to God himself and the plan of salvation that he's working in the world. So again, what I hope we see is not just advice on how to endure opposition. What I hope we see from this passage is a God with a will for his people who is trustworthy to follow. So that even if, you're, if you come up against someone like Sambalot and Tobiah, we can understand that if God has called us to something, he is trustworthy and he will see his work through. That if God's will brings his people into danger, it is God himself who will carry his people and protect them and see them through that danger. That's the God we worship. And that's the God that we see in Nehemiah chapter 4. Even in this moment, sustaining this fledgling group of construction workers so that they can build this wall. I think what we see most clearly from Nehemiah chapter 4 about God is the fact that he is a God with a will. It was his will for Nehemiah to come from Susa to Jerusalem. It was his will and his calling on Nehemiah to start rebuilding the wall because it's God's will that Jerusalem would be restored so that a remnant who've been kept in exile might be brought back and the people of Israel might be reestablished. Because it's God's will that the temple resume its operation. And it's God's will that the land of Israel continues on and that the Israelites might continue to have descendants. Because it's God's will to bring about the descendant of David, who will then ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ, make the work of the temple unnecessary. Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross is a part of God's plan of salvation and it hasn't happened yet because first God needs a wall in Jerusalem so that he can have a restored city, so that he can have a restored people, so that they can continue on in their land as was promised to Abraham so that he can bring his Savior and complete that promise by being a blessing to all the people around the world. 
So that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, a God with a will and a plan for his people. And as we see that, and I reflected on this chapter, I, I just have five implications of following God's will. If we see that we worship a God with a will and a plan for our lives, as we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, I just see five implications of following God's will from this passage. I'm not saying this list is exhaustive or complete in any way, but just five things that I can see from this passage and from the story of Nehemiah about what it looks like to follow God's will. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, five implications of following God's will. Number one, the first thing we see is that following God's will sets you at odds with the world. And I can say that today as a guarantee. It's probably not a guarantee we want to hear, but when we follow God's will, it inevitably sets us at odds with the world. That's because we worship a holy and righteous God and live in a sinful and rebellious world. And the world and all who are apart from God want nothing to do with him. They want to see nothing of his kingdom. And so anywhere where his kingdom is moving forward and his work is flourishing and his people are being built up, the world will oppose that. And we see that happening here in chapter 4. The walls are going up, but much more than that, God's people are being reestablished in this land. And it's not long before the anger is kindled in God's enemies. When we think of this following God's will, we can think of all throughout the Old Testament how those who faithfully did what God called them to faced opposition. How many prophets do we see going in to bring the word that God had laid on their hearts only to face ridicule, only to face persecution? In the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ himself coming to earth to do what? The will of the Father. And in doing so, he faced opposition, not just from the larger world, but even from religious leaders in Israel. Because even though they were in Israel, their hearts were set against God. And like the rest of the world, they opposed his kingdom work. And so Jesus Christ, he lived perfectly. He never did anything sinful against another human being. No one could rightfully say that Jesus had offended them by doing something wrong. Because Jesus never did anything wrong. He never spoke too quickly in anger. He never lashed out at somebody. He never lied to somebody. And yet, time and time again, people were upset, offended, and disappointed in what Jesus said and did. And ultimately, that's what led Pharisees and the scribes to conspire with the Roman rulers to send Jesus to the cross because he was doing the will of the Father. And the world could not stand that. So it opposed it and tried to stop it. Jesus, in his time here on this earth, even spoke to his disciples. In Luke 12, he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What he's speaking to is that if anyone would follow me, if anyone would follow my teaching, just know that it will bring division. Even in your own household, if you earnestly seek to follow Christ, but members of your own family do not have that same desire, they will oppose your walk with Christ. There will be division there. There will be tension there. I'm certain that for most, if not all of us in that room, we've seen that tension. It's one thing to disagree and feel division with a stranger. It's one thing to feel like you're a Cubs fan and someone else is a Sox fan so you can't stand each other. But it's something else entirely when in your own family there's division. And it's a sad and tragic thing, but Jesus tells us that's actually sometimes the cost of following me. 
Because when you follow me, even your closest of family members might not understand. And they won't just sit passively and idly by and let you do your thing, but rather, as a part of the world, they will stand against God's will moving forward. So following God's will sets you at odds with the world. Even in chapter 4, we see that Sambalot and Tobiah oppose those who are building the wall. But then eventually, even the families and friends of the builders plead with the construction crew, just come back home, stop what you're doing. It says those that lived out in the same regions as all of the opposition start buying in to the rhetoric that the wall won't be rebuilt. And so they, it, Nehemiah says, 10 times they came to us and said, just come back home. Stop the work. Can you imagine as a construction worker, you're building the wall, you're doing this work, you start hearing about Sambalot, he's angry. He's riling up the armies of Samaria. He might try to come down and invade us. In some ways, you, you might be afraid, but it also might fuel you. We're really doing something here. We're, we're getting noticed. But then your family member comes in from the countryside and says, stop building the wall, just come back home. It's dangerous. Don't you hear Sambalot's coming? So for those following God's will, it will set you at odds with the world and sometimes even loved ones. Luckily, through God's word, we, we learn, one, that we should not be surprised when this happens. Like we see all throughout the scriptures, God's people again and again are opposed by the world. It's no surprise when we face opposition. But that is not an occasion for us to lose heart, but instead to trust God. Implication number two, the ability to follow God's will is sustained by prayer. Notice how quickly Nehemiah turns to prayer. Verses 1 through 3, Sambalot and Tobiah are just mocking the work being done in Jerusalem. All they're doing is making fun of the things that are happening. Then verse 4, Nehemiah just begins praying. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Further on down, we see that the anger and the taunts of the opposition start to evolve into this plot to invade. In verse 8, it says they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. What do Nehemiah and his servants do? Verse 9, and we pray to our God. We pray to our God. We follow a God who has a will and a plan for our lives. But because of many things, including the opposition we see from the world, including our own hearts, including our own weaknesses, it is oftentimes difficult to follow that will. And I want to be clear here that the ability to follow God's will is not just initiated by prayer. It's not just that we pray to God, show me what to do and I'll go off and do it. The ability to follow God's will is not just confirmed by prayer, where we say, you know, I, I sense God is calling me to this. Let me just pray and make sure before I'm off into the races. Rather, the ability to follow God's will is sustained by prayer. That we pray and ask God, what would you have me do? When we sense his calling on our lives, we, we ask God, is this what you're calling me to? And then as we are about that work, we continue to turn to him in prayer. Again, Jesus Christ himself came to do the will of the Father. And we see him in his final moments before being arrested. What is he doing? He's praying. That for three years of public ministry, Jesus goes out doing the will of the Father, teaching powerfully, performing miracles. But the plan all along is for him to go to the cross to be a sacrifice. But even for Christ, who was perfect, who had perfect communion with God the Father, when it came close to the moment to be arrested and flogged and killed on a cross, he was in distress. So he went to a garden and he prayed. 
Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, even in emotional distress, still paused to pray. God, if this is your will, let it be so. Give me the strength to see it through. How much more in our imperfect nature do we need to continually go to God to sustain us, to pray to him, that we might be able to continue to carry out his will in our lives? Certainly, prayer looks different at different times. When Nehemiah first heard about Jerusalem, he had a season of mourning. He spent many months praying to God, confessing the sin of Israel, but also asking for God's will. But here, after the construction is started, things are moving, we start hearing about opposition, Nehemiah doesn't hit pause and and spend another few months in prayer. Instead, he has just a few moments of prayer. Praise, hear, oh God, hear their taunts. But we still have work to do. We still have watchmen to set. And he goes to God in just moments of prayer, continually going before God. Because it's the only way for us to sustain our ability to do the will of the Father. And so we have to ask ourselves, what kinds of prayers might we need at this time? Sometimes we ask in God's will for clarity. God, I don't know what to do here. I don't have the wisdom to know how to follow your will. Sometimes we ask God for strength. God, I know exactly what to do next. But I just don't know if I can put one foot in front of the other and keep doing this. Sometimes we pray to God because we need comfort. We're in the midst of crisis. We're in the midst of turmoil. Like Nehemiah we might pray and say, God, I need your protection. For many of our brothers and sisters around the world, protection is far more of a physical reality where following God is a matter of life and death. For us, that is rarely the case, yet still there are times and seasons where, God, I need your protection if I'm going to continue to follow your will. So if we seek to live lives that are following the will and plan of of God that must be sustained continually, day by day, through prayer. Implication number three. Following God's will is an act of worship that acknowledges his power and authority. Following God's will is an act of worship that acknowledges his power and authority. The heart of this chapter can be summed up in three words. If we look here at Nehemiah's response in verse 14, his crew and his servants know about the danger. They know that there's a plot of invasion. Verse 14, and I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. And then here we have these three words, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. The heart of this chapter can be summed up in those three words. Remember the Lord. For them, it's facing opposition as they try to build a wall. And their first task, before setting the watchman, remember the Lord. Why? Because following God's will is an act of worship. And we have to remember that God has sovereign power over all things. That he has unlimited knowledge about all things. He's not unaware of the danger that Jerusalem is facing right now. He has the knowledge of that. He has the power to stop it. He has the power to stay the hands of their opposition. So Nehemiah says, first and foremost, let's just remember the Lord. The only way he addresses Sambalot and Tobiah, don't fear them. How silly would it be to fear them? They're not more powerful than God. They're not even the most powerful people in the region. Remember, Artaxerxes is actually the ruler of this area. Why would we fear these men? Remember the Lord, the same God that that led Israel out of Egypt. 
The Exodus is, is a theme that the Israelites return to time and time again in their singing, in their worship, saying, do you remember how powerfully God acted when he took us out of Egypt and delivered us to a promised land? Because at the time that Israel was in Egypt, Egypt was the superpower. Pharaoh was the king on earth that seemed more powerful than any other king. But when it came time for God to take his people out of Egypt, Pharaoh looked like a silly little child who had absolutely no power to protect his land or his people or their resources. So if we worship a God who could do that to Pharaoh, why at all would we fear what Sambalot and Tobiah could do? Remember the Lord. So wherever God has called us to follow his will, how do we remember his power and authority? We remember what he has done both through the history of his people like we see in the Bible. We remember what he has done in our own lives. And we praise him for being sovereign above all things, for having all power and all knowledge. And then we're left just asking, who else would we ever want to follow and the God who knows all and sees all and has power above all. So when you're afraid of leaning into wherever God has called you, remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. The fourth implication we see, following God's will often looks like taking prudent actions. Following God's will often looks like taking prudent actions actions. Almost half of this chapter, verses 15 and following, just simply do a lot to describe the actions that Nehemiah takes to this opposition. And while Nehemiah does pray, while he does call his people to remember the Lord, he also scrounges up some weapons. He arms his workers. He gets a rotation of watchmen set. He's got a whole system for keeping people in Jerusalem at night so they'll, they'll be safe. He doesn't believe just because he's doing God's will that God will somehow have this magical dome of protection and just keep Jerusalem impregnable from any assault. He takes some very prudent actions here. The danger sometimes is that when we talk about following God's will, we can make it something completely mystical, or we can make it something completely spiritual. Whereas for Nehemiah, when he heard that there was an invading army that might be coming in, following God's will looked like finding some spears and some bows and some swords and getting them into the hands of fighters. Just using the reason and the discernment that God had given him and taking prudent actions. So what we should not do is just set up a, a false dichotomy where either we are following God's will or we are using our ration and our reason to figure out how to live. Instead, what I am saying and what we see from Nehemiah is that we can do both. We can follow God's will by using the ration and the reason that he's given us to figure out what we ought to do. Certainly, God will call us, and throughout history has called Christians to do things that seem to not be rational. History is full of men and women who have just given up everything and gone away into a foreign land to share the gospel with people who are hostile and have never heard the name of Jesus Christ before. And to an onlooker, a missionary who sells everything they have to go to Papua New Guinea to share the gospel, that might look like an unrational thing to do. So certainly God can call us to big things, but God also has gifted us with wisdom and discernment to figure out how to carry out his will. I have a friend who's getting ready to move, him and his wife, they have a, a newborn daughter, getting ready to move to Japan. They have a burden to work with a missions organization in Japan. 
And when you go there, oftentimes it's just cheaper to sell everything you have here and then just go buy new in Japan. It's cheaper than sometimes trying to ship everything you have. And so a year ago, this friend, him and his wife both had full-time jobs, good jobs, secure jobs, doing well. And now a year later, he has quit his job They have a newborn child to take care of, and they're now looking at how they're going to sell everything they own, go to a country where they don't yet speak the language, do a work that they're not totally sure what it is, but they sense God's calling in that. And on the one hand, we can look and say, that seems somewhat foolish. And maybe the wise thing would be, just wait till your child is older, or or maybe wait till you can figure out how to get all the necessities you'll need. But sometimes God does call people to big actions like that. But yet, even in the midst of that, I know from talking to this friend, he has not just pulled the ripcord on using reason and ration and logic to follow God. Instead, he's saying, if God is calling me this, let me figure out how I'm going to budget our finances well for this. If God is calling us to this, let's do all the work and research we can to know Japan well, to know the language, to know the people, to know the work. If God is calling us to this, let's figure out how we're going to take care of our newborn child as we try to move halfway around the world. So following God's will, even in something big like moving halfway across the world, doesn't mean we just give up on doing prudent actions and trying to take rational steps. Rather, God has given us reason. God has given us wisdom and discernment so that we can follow him well, whether he's called us to Japan to share his name or to our next-door neighbors to share his name. And so we must use the wisdom and the discernment that God has given us to think through things well. Nehemiah did not have a lapse of faith in God by setting up watchmen. Rather, he demonstrated his faith in God by setting up watchmen saying, I know God will fight for us, so let me get an army ready for when the fighting comes. Because when that conflict comes, I am sure that God will give us the victory. So for us, what does it look like to take prudent actions? Just a few examples that I thought of. Let's take this as an example. Maybe you feel that God is calling you to encourage or minister to a particular person, a friend or a family member. You say, I really feel that God is calling me to to minister to this person. Speak God's word into their life. That doesn't mean that we just have to sit idly by and hope that we run into them at the grocery store so that we can then give them a Bible verse. Rather, we can take the prudent action of say, I'm gonna call them up, I'm gonna shoot them a text. There's some steps that I can take just knowing what God has given me to minister to this person. Perhaps you believe that it's God's will that you might grow in your knowledge of the Bible. That means that we don't just have to sit around hoping that we just can look at this book and understand it better than we did the day before, but there's some prudent actions we can take. Setting aside a time to read it regularly trying to carve out some time to meet with other Christians, to get into a group and and say, I want to learn God's word better. Will you help me understand this? Finding a mature Christian that can help give you knowledge about God's word to help stir up your affection. And so if we believe God is calling us to something, we don't just have to sit back and wait to see how it plays out, but rather we can begin to take prudent actions to follow that will. Just like when Nehemiah hears of this opposition, He doesn't just say, that'll be really interesting to see how God defends the city. Instead, he says, where are the spears? Where are the bows? Let's find them. Let's let's equip our crew. Implication number five. Following God's will starts with what is clear. Following God's will starts with what is clear, and I'll explain this. Where I see this in our chapters, not just in chapter 4, but rather also from chapter 1 moving forward. When I look at how Nehemiah follows the will of God, and even how we come to this point in chapter 4, it shows us that following God's will starts 
with following him in what he has clearly laid out in Scripture. And here's what I mean by that. When Nehemiah heard the report of what was happening in Jerusalem, the first problem he identified in Jerusalem was not the condition of Israel and the land and the state that the walls were in. Rather, the first problem he identified was the condition of the people of Israel and the state that their hearts were in. When he hears that Jerusalem is in ruins, he turns to God and prays to him and says, God, forgive us for we have sinned. The primary issue in Nehemiah is not that the walls are broken down. The primary issue in Nehemiah is that God's people have strayed from him and are living lives of unrighteousness. And so Nehemiah just starts by confessing the sin of Israel, by saying, God, you have called your people to be holy, and we haven't done that. Confess that sin to you. Ask for you to restore us. The wall is only a secondary concern for Nehemiah. The condition of God's people and their hearts is the primary problem. And so for, for him, if he's able to go to Jerusalem and lay every brick of the wall back in place and, and bring it back to being a fortress, but the people of Israel just stay in their idolatry and unrepentant sin, it's all a waste. We haven't accomplished anything. And what we see is that when we're following God, we first have to just start with what's very clearly laid out in Scripture for how to follow him. For the people of Israel, it was very clear the first thing you are to do is to be a holy people because you worship a holy God. And what does it look like to be a holy people? God lays out the commandments to let them know this is how you are to look separate from everyone else around you. This is how you are to worship me alone and not fall into idolatry. That's the first call that God lays on the people of Israel. And so if they're not following him in that call, it doesn't matter if they just try to find out the specific thing they should do with this wall in Jerusalem. We follow God's will by first doing what he's clearly laid out and then trying to wrestle with the specific things he might be calling us to. I see this played out every year in our student ministries where as students approach the end of high school, inevitably one of their larger life decisions is what to do after high school. College, no college, if college, which college? The possibilities, the choices seem almost endless. And several of our students can then wrestle to say, well, I just, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is. Should it be school A or school B? As we move past college, it then becomes, well, is it job A or job B? Which is God calling me to? Is God calling me to stay in, in this job where, where things are a struggle, or is he calling me to step out in faith and quit and find something else? Is God calling me to move to a certain area or buy a certain house? Is God calling me to marry this person or that person or to not marry? What is God calling me to? And, and we can sometimes get so much anxiety trying to figure out the specifics of what is, God has called us to that we forget to live out the very clear things he has called us to. So before trying to understand some of the things that are less clear about God's will, we first should know and follow the things that are abundantly clear of God's will. And there's so much that is clear. Just a few. If you're wondering what God's will is for your life. First, God has called and willed that all would come to repentance through Jesus Christ. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God's will is that you would call on him as your Savior. Confess your sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's God's will for your life. Husbands, God's will for your life is to love your wives sacrificially. Wives, God's will for your life is to submit to your husbands lovingly. Children, anyone with parents, God's will for your life is to honor your parents. Fathers, God's will is that you would provide for your household. Mothers, God's will is that you would provide a safe household to raise up children and to train them in the way that pleases God. 
employees. God's will is that you might work hard and with integrity as if working for the Lord. Supervisors or employers, God's will is that you might treat your employees fairly and justly. Those with money, God's will is that you would steward it well and spend it generously. Those without money, God's will is that you would look to him as provider and thank him for all that he has given you and to trust him for your daily bread. Christian, God's will is that you might cling to Christ alone for your salvation, never trying to add to that message of salvation, never trying to subtract from it, but knowing that every step of the way, it is only through the work of Christ that I have been saved. God's will is that you would cling to that. It's God's will that you would not forsake meeting together with the church. We see that in Hebrews 10. It's the habit of some, but, but do not forsake meeting together. That's God's will for his people. God's will is that you'd be ready to share the hope you have found in Christ with anyone who is around you. God's will is that you might make disciples of Christ, that you might teach them to observe all that he has commanded. His will is that you would encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. God's will is that you would confess your sin regularly to God and to the men and women around you. God's will is that you would confront brothers and sisters who have offended you or who have wronged you in a loving way. God's will is that you would not stir up disunity and dissension in your church family. God's will is that your speech would be edifying, not obscene, that you'd have no part in gossip. God's will is that in humility you might count others more significant than yourselves. I could go on and on with what God's will is for our lives. Whenever we struggle with what specific thing is God calling me to, we first should say, have I tried to follow God's will in all where he has made it clear? Have I given myself through the work of the Spirit to follow him well with what he has entrusted to me before trying to figure out, is it house A or house B? Do I get involved with this ministry? Do I join that group? Do I have that conversation? First, are you following God's will and all the things he's laid out in scripture? And then we can begin to prayerfully wrestle through, God, what is it specifically you have called me to? And I think what we will often find is an immense freedom for God to say, if, you, if you're following my will as I've laid out in Scripture, then there is a freedom to follow where you believe he has called you in the specific things of life. With that, let me pray. Father, I ask that you would give us hearts that are quick to remember you, that we might not fear those who are around us, that we might have a passion and a desire to follow the will that you have for our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.